Hello and welcome to God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm media coordinator and sentient tree, Giles Goff. Hi, I'm librarian and talking raccoon, Julia Hall. And today we're going to be looking at Avengers Infinity War, the 2018 film released by Marvel that was a two-parter which frankly changed the world in geek terms. Yeah. We'll be looking at the snap and its particular relevance to one specific biblical prophecy. Julia, you may be wondering, did I bring you back for this episode purely because of your uh, feelings towards a certain... Uh, captain and you would be right (laughs) i knew they'd come in useful one day you know so you said seeing captain america in 2011 was a a light bulb moment for you as you described it seeing captain america with a beard in infinity war did that have any anything for you i don't know if it's if it's suitable for you know a family family podcast um i really don't there's there's a surprising lack of a, of a steve content in infinity war but then because it is so jam-packed with stuff mm-hmm. you know there's some people that kind of have to take a bit of a back seat yeah but any any steve content is quality content what do you remember your experience of watching this film for the first time? I was traumatised, to be quite honest. I Rewatching the film <laughs> for this was actually the first time I'd seen it since 2018 because I... Oh, wow. Yeah, I ended up having to kind of see it on my own last minute. It was sort of the last showing at the, the very small cinema in uh, in Bangor that had everything like two weeks late. So I'd managed to dodge <laughs> all the spoilers. I kept my head down. I went to go see it and I was just utterly shattered um mm-hmm. that especially something i mentioned in the captain america episode is you know i was after seeing avengers assemble in the cinema and seeing that very first thanos fine i'll do it myself post credit sting it was like all adding up to this moment and then to actually be in that moment um was was pretty big pretty monumental yeah fantastic i went to see it for my birthday happy birthday to you oh, <laughs> everyone you love yeah. is dead <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'm usually able to do is convince everybody I love to cosplay as Avengers to go and see oh, it. Amazing! Everybody dressed up. I got everyone sort of absolutely go went full on for the the costumes. And amazing! Guess which Avenger I went dressed as? Captain America, surely, because he's the best one. He is the best one, but I already dressed as him for Civil War, so I needed to switch ah, it up. Okay. For this, for this one, I went dressed as Hawkeye. Who is not actually in the film anymore. (laughs) I had the jacket and everything. I'd been working on my biceps and triceps, you know, to really make it look good. That is, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. And the thing, the thing is, when we went to see it, my wife Claire didn't actually know it was a two-parter. So the snap happens, everybody dissolves and disappears, and that's the end of the film. And the poor girl was absolutely traumatized. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Even when you know it's a two-parter, that that hits hard. Yeah. Um. Oh. Oh. And the frustrating thing was, my friends, my friends Jen and Griff, who came dressed as uh, Spider-Man and the Scarlet Witch, respectively, they turned up late. So they'd had some car problems or something. So they met us in the pub afterwards, and then we're all sat there. Oh. And we can't talk about it because we can't oh, spoil yeah. the film for them. So we're all in a state of shock 
and we're not able to actually process it in any Ooh, way. Oh, that's shape or rough. Form. That is rough. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now. Uh, we'll get to our, our next segment. For this next speaker, did you know that Universal Pictures actually optioned the rights to his life story? I did not know that. That's incredible. They took it, they fictionalized it a little bit, and it's now called the Fast and Furious franchise. Wow. Now it's time for Matt's Facts. Hi, everyone. It's Matt here again, this time with some facts about Infinity War for you all. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. So... Obviously, I'm going to assume that anybody listening to this show has already seen Infinity War, the, the film, the MCU. But this obviously comes from the Infinity Gems storyline. And what I'd be interested to know is how does the comic book original storyline differ from what we got in the film? Well, differs in quite a big way, to be honest. Aside from the name, not a lot of crossover. Right, okay. If we want to understand Infinity War in terms of the comics, we actually have to go back to the Infinity Gauntlet, which is what it is more based upon. Right. Now, a very big part of this is a character we've not yet met, or depending on when you watch this, you may have met him by this point, which is Adam Warlock. Okay. He plays a big part in a lot of the Infinity saga stories in the comic Okay, books. so who is Adam Warlock? Adam Warlock was actually, surprisingly enough, created on Earth mm -hmm. by a group of scientists. Originally, had no name, left. He eventually gained the name Warlock by meeting a character called the High Evolutionary, mm -hmm. who I believe we're also soon going to meet in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And he actually gained the name Adam from a group of teenagers that he befriended. His role has been taken over by quite a few other characters. For example, in the comics, Vision has never had an Infinity Stone in his forehead. Okay. The character that had that was Adam Warlock, right. who had the Soul Stone. Okay, that's fascinating. Just for those who aren't familiar with the comics, Adam Warlock is going to feature quite heavily in Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and is going to be played by Will Poulter. So if you get a chance, do a quick Google there. Now I've given that bit, I can go back to Infinity Gauntlet. Infinity Gauntlet is the comic where Thanos snapped his fingers and, spoilers, half the universe died. <laughs> spoilers. However, there's a few differences. Namely, his motives. In the comic books, Thanos is in love with death. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an odd relationship, those two. They're not what I'd call relationship goals, are they? Most definitely not. <laughs> While Thanos is a big villain, the true villain is actually Nebula. Okay, alright. In the comics, Nebula has been posing as the granddaughter of Thanos, and once she is found out, Thanos burns her, tortures her, and she goes off the rails. Standard Thanos stuff. Yeah. And in the end, she has to be talked down. And it ends, and this is the parallel between the two. Now, in Infinity Gauntlet, Thanos has lost, and he goes off to become a farmer, mm -hmm. much like he does at the end in the film. Apart from that, not a lot of continuity between the two. Right. There are a lot of differences between it. The Infinity Gauntlet was in 1991, Infinity War was 92, 
and the third part, the Infinity Crusade, was 1993. This is the first time I've even heard the words Infinity Crusade put together. Now, obviously, at the moment, in the MCU, we've got a fair bit of the cosmic side, but we haven't got that rich history that Marvel did in 1991 in the comics Mm -hmm. to bring that through so which is why obviously a lot has had to change now i think we're going to have a few bits get explored a bit such as if they do another eternals we've met thanos's brother star fox i think that could get explored a bit more but it's definitely going to be interesting essentially all they've really done from it is taken thanos the gauntlet and just the concept of the snap really haven't they pretty much that's what they've taken Mm -hmm. Matt, thank you so much for talking to us about this one. We'll see you for the next one. Thanks very much. Indeed, no problem. I'll speak to you all again soon. Hey guys, it's Editing Giles here. Just popping in to say you should definitely check out our Patreon page. If you head to www.patreon.com forward slash Podcast, you'll find loads of bonus content such as extended interviews, extra little bits that didn't quite make it into the episode, as well as exclusive patrons-only episodes like God in Music or God in Gaming. Plus, if you sign up to our Archbishop Spike Lee tier, you'll get to hear episodes a week in advance. So why not give it a try? And now, back to the show. So, Julia, those were Matt's facts. What did you think? I'm just impressed he he was able to keep all that straight in his head because that sounded very, very complex Mm. and very different to to the Marvel universe that I know. So we've got all our comic book stuff sorted. Now let's dive into the film side of things. Our, our next guest is somebody who is really quite impressive. We've been trying to get him on the podcast for quite some time. I'll let him introduce himself. So I am Jordan King. I'm a freelance film and TV journalist. I've got bylines with Empire Magazine, Movie Marker, Zavi, Why Now, and a few other places as well. And I've been writing for eight years now, so the best part of a decade. Fantastic, Jordan. Thank you so much. Been trying to get you on this podcast for ages, so it's really nice to finally get you here. It's taken a little while, but we got there in the end. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Okay, let's get straight to it. Avengers Infinity War. What I want to do, because obviously Matt has definitively taken care of all the comic book routes to it, could you maybe tell me a bit more about Marvel Studios? In particular, I was thinking, why did they choose the Infinity Gauntlet storyline as the, the the focus of their first few phases of films? I think, first and foremost, I think that it was a decision that was sort of based on the establishment of genuine stakes and like a, a palpable, lasting sense of consequence within a universe that's often been not entirely unfairly accused of having neither. You know, how many times can viewers see New York laid siege to or the Avengers surviving apocalypse-level threats before eventually you get a little bit tired of, you know, the heroes win, the bad guys lose, and, you know, we repeat. Well, it's it's baked into into the comics, isn't it, that sort of thing? We have... You have individual storylines around about the sort of 80s, 90s. They worked out, hey, if we have crossover events, we sell more comics... And the amount of times that you end up killing off characters only to bring them back, you end up with very low stakes indeed, don't you? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think the thing is, is that whilst for for comic books, you've got that kind of the immediate rush of grabbing it off the shelf and it's a week after week thing. And so Mm -hmm. there's this kind of ecosystem where you're devouring it. And the more you devour, the more you want. I think that there was a risk uh, going into 
the the later phases of what's now called the Infinity Saga that you know you could have two or three films each year and you could see these heroes but once they've been introduced and established if there wasn't a turning point for them if there wasn't something that was going to be a lasting impactful event on that universe then what do you do when those heroes are no longer there what do you do when new avengers come into the fray if if the world around them hasn't somehow been changed over the course of their time and so i think that in terms of you know what they'd done prior to infinity war civil war was almost like the dry run for something yeah. uh, infinity war scope and the what infinity gauntlet brings to that because obviously you had the the sokovia records were a big sort of discussion point in the politics of that universe um well civil war and, was people called it like avengers 2.5 didn't they yeah exactly and it and it very much was avengers 2.5 obviously it had to have captain america at kind of the center of it and you know, mm. you end on that kind of quite iconic moment of him sort of walking out of shadows, saying that he'll be there if Tony needs him. And that's kind of your, okay, well, the next Avengers film is a go. Yeah. But I think in terms of the Infinity Gauntlet specifically, I think what the Infinity Gauntlet has is to be plain Thanos. <laughs> yeah. And and I think what, what Thanos uh, represents is, you know, he's known as the Mad Titan, but in some ways you could kind of call him the King of Stakes. But at the point where he arrives fully fleshed out in the MCU and not just in post-credit stings, mm. they've been playing with comic book fans already by tossing in, you know, the Tesseract in Captain America and the Mind Stone in Avengers Assemble. Mm. And there's always this sense throughout these, you know, phase one and phase two that we're being guided towards something greater than a Loki or greater than an Ultron. And so that was Infinity War. That's what they're building towards. And, you know, we don't get Thanos pining for literal death's affections and we don't get <laughs> Doctor Doom. And, you know, some of those things work a lot better in the sort of kitschy world of comic books where mm. you can spend a long time with Thanos um, sort of essentially doing his version of a Shakespearean romance by <laughs> wiping out half the universe to make death love him back. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here's the thing that always messes with my head, right? Is that I can theoretically work out how to make a film, put it together and put it out in the world, and yet how to make a fleet of films to put them all out and make them successful like this is something absolutely beyond me. So I what I'm interested in is I've heard a, f a phrase, the Marvel Parliament, and I was wondering if you'd heard of that and what, what impact it has on their slate and their creative process. Yeah, so the Marvel the Marvel Parliament is it's kind of what you would imagine from the name Marvel Parliament. So it's, it's basically Marvel Studios' brain trust. So it's mm. a group of executives and producers that's headed up by uh, Kevin Feige, whose job it is to oversee all of the MCU projects. And they ensure that the, the continuity, the lore, the characters, and the story, as well as all of the characters' individual arcs, are all cohering and all sort of synergizing across various phases and various story arcs. Um, so they're, they're the guys that know uh, an, an Infinity War is on the horizon, and they'll help steer directors and screenwriters to keep track of the Infinity Stones. So... You know, if the if the Tesseract is with Loki in the end of uh, at the end of Thor and going into Avengers Assemble, mm -hmm. they'll make sure that we know where each individual Infinity Stone is as we get further along the line. So they're basically um, guiding the process behind closed doors. They're kind of 
what you might also refer to as kind of the the scroll keepers. <laughs> they they they've got the timelines. They know exactly which characters are in play, which characters are off the table, and also they know what the future might hold. So if you look at the state of the Marvel Cinematic Universe now, post Disney acquiring Fox they've set up the multiverse saga as their next big thing. Mm. And these are the guys that know that in the not too distant future, the mutants are on the table yeah. and the fantastic four are on the table. So these, these are basically the Uber nerds that have managed to get very lucrative and attractive positions at the top of the, <laughs> of the Marvel pyramid. And they are locked in a room on a writer's retreat once every few years and they'll spend four months hashing out the next decade of of the cinematic universe so that every single plot beat, every single character beat, they already know what's going to happen before they've even picked a director or started writing a line of dialogue for a, for a film. That's insane. That's absolutely crazy. So one thing um, that we've seen is that uh, Marvel don't always play fair with the fans when it comes to their promotion in particular the way they they sometimes tweak things in the trailer could you tell us uh one of the key differences from the trailer to the finished film for infinity war so in fairness the infinity war trailer is spiritually very faithful to the film that we eventually get it's very sort of it's filled with portent mm -hmm. it's it's thanos talking about how in time you will know what it is to lose it's very ominous you see tony stark looking like he's crying there's some blood on his hand you know that it's not going to be your usual triumphant hero epic mm -hmm. however as you say the the folks at marvel are occasionally a little bit tricksy and so <laughs> in the case of infinity war for example uh, a big part of the film itself is Bruce Banner struggling with this kind of almost impotence that he's experiencing when it comes to hulking out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's constantly trying to draw out the Hulk and it's just not working for him. And that's a pivotal plot point of the film. And it's the reason why he ends up in the Hulk buster when we get to Wakanda. In the trailer for the film, however, you see Hulk as part of that iconic assem uh, Avengers assemblage mm -hmm. charging through the forest of Wakanda very much not struggling to hulk out. And I think the reason that they do this is obviously so that they can bury a little bit some of their secrets. They can tease you with the general idea of what's about to happen, but they can keep a few punches back. Because obviously, yeah. you know, Bruce Banner is a is a, one of the linchpins of the Avengers. And if they'd have revealed anything about what's going on with his character in the trailer there and then then there's only so many punches that they'd be pulling in advertising that, you know, you then wouldn't get to experience firsthand when you're watching. And it's a bit of delightful misdirection, isn't it? You're so busy looking at the thing over here that you completely miss the thing over there, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And they're experts at doing that. They do mm -hmm. it not just with the trailers for the films, but they do it with the interviews. And, you know, I don't for one second believe that Tom Holland is just prone to spoiling everything <laughs> that happens in every Avengers film. I very much do believe that they tap him on the shoulder and go hey, do you want to accidentally leak this plot point for Avengers? Do you want to accidentally tease this next installment in the Spider-Man saga? And the fans love it because it's it's interaction and it's part of that sense that if you're a fan of these films, you're also somehow a part of it and you're being welcomed into mm. the the sort of the, the collective hub of it. Yeah, and they they, they manage their, their fan um, 
relationships really, really well. I mean, I think certainly if you compare them to what they're doing over in Warner Brothers, then it's absolutely masterful. And yet we we get a uh, an article from some writer here or there every few months about is this the end for Marvel? And the answer's pretty much always no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like, well, I'm glad you filled some column inches there. One thing I was thinking about, what, what was the, how would you describe the critical and fan reaction to the snap? I think for the most part, the snap achieved what it was intended to. And to sort of revert back a little bit to what you were asking before about the choice of the Infinity Gauntlet, Mm -hmm. this establishment of genuine stakes with lasting consequences. The snap is a moment where you leave the cinemas feeling like, oh my goodness, like the heroes that I love are gone. Mm. How are they going to come back? You believe that they will, but you don't know how. And you know that the world's got to be different because half of the population have just disappeared. Yeah. I think as a fan, I mean, I worked in a cinema at the time that the film came out. And so I was cleaning the screens whilst people were waiting for the post credits night after night after night after night. And I saw fans, you know, little kids absolutely crying, but also saying this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. Yeah. And at the same time, you had parents doing the exact same thing, where they were there going, "Yeah, but they they've got to, they've got to bring Spider Man back. They, they can't they can't get rid of the Guardians." <laughs> and I think critically, what was interesting is it felt like a little bit of a watershed moment of the highbrow critics and the so called perceived lowbrow film blogger type community mm-hmm. actually reaching a bit of a commonality, where some of the critics, like even Mark Kermode, who's occasionally been a little bit frosty in his reception to superhero films mm-hmm. took a seat took a step back from it all and said well actually hang on they're doing something here that they're exploring themes here and ideas that are going to have a consequence and the snap itself seemed to be a real hearkening back to the feeling that people had when empire strike uh, empire strikes back came out yeah the sense that okay, we can do these big family-friendly blockbuster entertainments that are going to sell a million figures and spawn a million sequels. But you can do that and also leave us with something to mull over when you when you leave the cinema. And I think critics responded to that largely well. The closest uh, feeling I can remember is coming out of Matrix Reloaded uh, for the first time. You know, once everything's... that Just that, that incredibly sense of sadness from uh, from it and we only had to wait six months for the conclusion that for endgame we had to wait a full year listen um yeah. J- jordan i could talk to you for literal days on this stuff <laughs> it has been it has been an absolute joy thank you so much uh for talking to us and uh do me a, a personal favor when you are in that revolving fourth chair on the Empire podcast, will you will you remember us and come back and talk to us sometime? I will happily come back and talk to you anytime. Thank you very awesome. much for finally, finally figuring out a chance for me to get on with you. It's, you. it's been great. Thank you so much. So, Julia, that was Jordan. What did you think? Fantastic. It's so nice to have someone... Well, we always have people who are so knowledgeable, but mm-hmm. just that, that extra kick. Although I think... A job that I didn't know that I wanted, that I now desperately need, is to be a Marvel scroll keeper. <laughs> Can you imagine the flex on your mates? Yeah, I'm a scroll keeper for Marvel, mate. What do you do? I like the idea. Want? You'd like to have some half moon glasses and some robes and yeah, and a big a big hood. Yeah, you'd shuffle along. Yeah. There'd be a uh, oh. there'd be a sort of like sliding ladder, and you'd walk yes. up and go, ah, now this is the mighty Thor three fifty two. Now yeah. here you'll see it clearly states, you know. Oh, yeah, 
I love it. I, I was also quite impressed to find out that um, Jordan knew who you were. I have been in the presence of the great Jordan King and I feel I'm yeah. very much changed for the better for it. So, yeah. Yeah, he said he told me off mic how uh, how great Rostra were to him, and I I quite like the idea that the tendrils of the Banguminati yes. spread far and wide. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, we get our hooks right in there. I first um, heard about Jordan because Terry White, the former editor of Empire, referenced him in in a tweet, and that's how I heard about him because mm. I thought, oh flipping it, this is a this is a kid from Rill writing for some of the most prestigious sort of movie magazines yeah, out there. Yeah, I've sort of been able to like follow his trajectory because obviously mm. we were friends on Facebook from when we met um, and watching him sort of go, oh, I'm going to go for this and sometimes it didn't work out but then more often than not it would and I've just mm. kind of watched watched him become this incredible freelance, you know, oh, I've written for Empire, I've written for these guys, I'm doing this and it's just, it's incredible to watch. He is a really impressive dude. I have, mm. uh, and it kind of inspired me to sort of really give my writing a kick. I uh, I haven't managed to snag Empire just yet, but I've been ticking along, got a whole lot of my stuff out there, and managed to sort of get some work for Premier Christianity. So yeah, I, yeah. he's like he, he's a, he's a real inspiration, yeah. and he doesn't even know it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Now it's time for <gasps> finding the faith in the film. Ba-ba. Okay, so. We're only actually going to be looking at one particular specific thing in Infinity War. We're going to be looking at the snap, okay, where Thanos gets all the Infinity Stones, puts it in the gauntlet, snaps his fingers, and 50% of... Is it the galaxy or the universe? I believe it's the universe is what yeah. is the more, more commonly uh, uh, mentioned word, although I suppose it ends up being a little bit more than that, because as we see in the post-credits... If the if the pilot of your plane suddenly disappears, yeah, 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 it doesn't end well for anybody. You're a, yeah, you're a bit uh, you're in a bit of a pickle there. Yeah, either way, it's a lot, you know. Mm. So we're going to be focusing on the snap and how, in particular, how it references relates to something called the rapture. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, I have heard of that. The big sort of finale of the bible i suppose that's uh, some big boy stuff i'm excited yeah so listen i spent all day looking for a really good really clear explanation of the rapture and how it relates to everything and you would not believe well, actually you you would completely believe how many <sighs> mediocre white boys out there who will start explaining it and then they'll say, now the thing you need to understand about the rapture is a premillennial dispensationalist take on it. And you're like, well, hang on. <laughs> what are those words? Now, like, obviously, mediocre white boys, them's my peeps. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, you know, oh, yeah. they, they, uh, I fit in with them quite nicely. But I couldn't find anybody who could explain it in a nice, simple, easy fashion until... Believe it or not, I found I was looking at the Rapture plus Infinity War, and I found this great writer called Leia Snellbach. I hope that's how I'm pronouncing the name right. Uh, who wrote for Tor.com, and she wrote a really, really comprehensive, um, really fun to read explanation of it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get into that now. Okay. Fantastic. So she says. The rapture is a very particular idea of the end times tied to a very particular branch of Christianity. It's rooted in two passages from the Old Testament, sorry, from the New Testament, one from Matthew 24, 37 to 40. So it says, 
for as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Son of Man is like Jesus' nickname, okay? <clears throat> for as in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of, of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken away and one will be left. So the paragraph in Matthew is doing a ton of work. First, we get a callback to the story of Noah, so grounding the listener in history, and the flood is invoked as a metaphor of how abrupt and shocking the end times will be. Mm. Finally, we get the line that a lot of people have spent the last couple of millennia arguing about. That is how it will become... That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Okay, so that's one bit. Then, mm. we got our boy, Paul... Uh, writing to the Thessalonians. So this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 to 17. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we be with the Lord forever. And as for Thessalonians... The, the thing that a lot of people got stuck on was that phrase, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So this led to the, the very popular kind of rapture imagery of people being mm. like swept up along with the souls yeah. of the dead. This image absolutely captivated Christian theologians. Ideas about the end times were debated and turned into art and people fixated on the starkness of the passages create an extremely dramatic idea of the end people abruptly snatched out of their lives to join all the faithful in the air while everyone else is left on earth mm, so it's a, it's a pretty vivid picture it is hella vivid okay <laughs> so as the centuries roll on christianity has like felt the need to reinvent or reform itself more than a few times. It's like trying to return to that that sense of being a young, urgent religion rather yeah. than a sort of stuffy establishment religion it's become. Yeah. And quite a few would-be reformers have found that one of the easiest ways to bring Christianity back to its roots is to uncancel the apocalypse if you like you know <laughs> uh like in the in the early church they believed okay Jesus the Messiah's come back, Messiah's ascended the apocalypse is going to come, boom, you know? And, of course, if you're there and the Romans have just destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and the rest of it, then that's entirely easy to believe. Yeah. But then the world kept turning and, you know, check it out. Yeah, it seems like we've gone through a few uh, end of times. Yeah. Um, just generally throughout history. 100%. So the ideas about the rapture start to sort of build in the 1800s. A Church of Ireland priest named John Nelson Darby quit the established church, believing it strayed too far from the scriptures, and developed a particular view of the world called premillennial dispensationalism. Like, try saying that five times fast, you know? <laughs> With your mouth full of marshmallows as well. Yeah. So this thing of, like, splitting from the established church, like, I'm not being funny, but it happens all the damn time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, Martin Luther starts it with, like, nailing oh. his theses to the I door. Love, I love Martin Luther. I'm yeah. a, as, as a studier of European history, Martin Luther is my G. Yeah. My man said, I got some issues, boy. He, he, you know, he would have loved social media, I think. You know, yeah. I got an issue. 
Here it Absolutely. is, black and white. Read it and um, weep, you know? <laughs> Just nailing stuff to doors like nobody's yeah. business, you know? He um, did not care. Yeah. He and was going to tell him what he thought. Yeah. And as time has, has gone on, there's been so many times where people have gone, nope, the church has got it wrong. We're going to go do this way, you know? So anyway, pre-millennial dispensationalism. So let's let's break that down. Millennialism is the belief that Jesus is eventually going to have, uh, is going to return and have a thousand year reign on earth, which will be pretty That's great. So nice. That's yeah. referenced specifically in Revelations. And dispensationalism is the idea that of life kind of unfolding on earth in a series of eras okay yeah so put bluntly like marvel's phase one phase two phase three phase four but for human history you know right yeah i get you yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> what phase are we in now i wonder <laughs> oh, well uh i think we're in phase three possibly i'm not sure yeah no that's that sounds about right yeah so Darby theorized that the rapture would come before life got too terrible, but things would go downhill fast immediately after it. So this is called pre-tribulation pre-millennialism. So the idea they get you get raptured before things get really bad, you get raptured before uh Jesus' thousand years of rule, you know? Yeah. The idea that the end of the world starts with the with the rapture continues through seven years of natural disasters, wars, plagues called a tribulation, and then ends mm. with the second coming. And the second coming starts a million a millennium of peace and marks the last dispensation, like the the final phase. And this idea in the eighteen hundreds is hugely appealing to uh, Christians, in particular, like it's really appealing to like the aristocracy. Because they're kind of seeing their way of life coming to an end, as it is. They've had, um, they've they've seen the the American Revolution. They're seeing the French Revolution sort of play out. Yeah. And that they're, they're getting this sense of things coming to an end is mm. self evident to them, you know. Yeah. And the idea of getting kind of swept away before things get really bad, as I'm sure you can imagine, in terms of like retail religion is really popular for like getting yeah. new converts you know yeah so but as it as it, with all things with any kind of theology you know there's going to be people who are going to be lining up to argue about it oh yeah Martin Luther <laughs> 2.0 so we have a few different variations so there's i can't believe i'm gonna to have to say all these <laughs> mid-tribulational pre-millennialism and pre-wrath premillennialism, so the rapture will happen at some point during the tribulation. Yep. Partial pre-tribulation premillennialism. People will be raptured in groups, either based on the timing of their conversion to Christianity or by the strength of their relationship with God. I love that. I like the idea that you're like, oh, but hang on. He got raptured before me and I got saved before him. What's this Q yeah. jumping about, you know? Uh, what you see here, he has 20 more Jesus points in him, <laughs> um, on account of that nice donation he made last week. Oh, no, yeah. No, you're right. You're right, my bad. I'll see, I'll see you in a week. <laughs> well, quite. Uh, then there's post-tribulational premillennialism in which the rapture comes after the tribulation, with everyone, faithful Christian or no, suffering the crappiness of the end times. Another thing to keep in mind, at some point during the tribulation, the Antichrist will appear and come into power, kicking off Armageddon, which ends when Jesus comes back and defeats the Antichrist and 
the rest of it. One of my um, theologian friends also described himself as a millennialist, so not believing in in the millennial thing. So it's just it's a lot. It is a lot. It is a lot. There is there is there is a lot to go around, you know. So what's interesting now is how this starts to bleed into pop culture. So rapture theories were a big part of evangelical culture in the early 20th century, but it wasn't until like end of the 1960s that rapture imagery began hitting pop culture. So mm. we start we're going to start off with a guy called Hal Lindsey and his book The Late Great Planet Earth, which you know becomes a bestseller. In 1970, Lindsay theorized that the current dispensation was going to end in the 1980s and that humanity was embarking on its last decade before the end times. Now, he stopped short of setting an actual date, but he did imply that Jesus would probably come back by 1988. And that would have sucked for for many reasons, not just for the fact that my wife was born in 1989, so we would be we'd be living in a clearless universe, and that's something I don't have to deal with, you know? Horrendous. Yeah, no one wants that. No one wants that. The book was massively popular, become the first book of Christian prophecy to be published by a secular publishing house when it was reissued in 1973. Yeah. And there was apparently there was a film adaptation, and guess who, who narrated it? Oh, go on, tell me. Orson Welles. Oh, wow. My man, Orson Welles. I just picture him kind of rolling up you know big hat and coat sort of like cigar and a brandy in one hand in the recording booth whilst he's sort of going through it you know wow yeah and then later on 1972 we get a uh, another film adaptation called a thief in the night which took the next most obvious step and applied sci-fi horror tropes to a rapture Mm. story a woman named Patty wakes up to find her husband and family have all disappeared. She finds her husband's electric razor buzzing in the sink, a lawnmower whirs on the, on the ground, a raptured kid's stuffed animal rolls down on empty pavement. And this is the one I sent you the trailer for. Yes, I was reading the comments which largely consisted of this scared the bejesus out of me as a child, uh, forever traumatised, um, so glad that my parents had all of this on VHS. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Varying stuff like that. <laughs> do you know what? I think I've seen it somewhere. I think I've I've seen it at somebody's house. I, As I got saved, I got saved in a Pentecostal church, which was, well, it it put the fun in fundamental, let's put it that way, you mm. know? And, yeah. uh, and I'm pretty sure they had a copy of it somewhere and then we, we saw some of it, you know? <laughs> So the Antichrist, it does, yeah, yeah, seem like one of those films that you, that sort of exists in the very. Was that really something that I ever? Or was it just a fever dream? And then years down the line, it's vindicated for you, and you're like, oh, it was real. I didn't yeah. just make it up, you know. Exactly, exactly. You know, so in this film, the the Antichrist takes over the government immediately, and his army of Midwesterners roll out in minivans to hunt Patty Town <laughs> down and tattoo a hand with six six six. Oh God, you know, and. Uh, like then there's a sequel things get worse there's a nuclear war and it culminates with like the antichrist in a in a final battle with jesus in the in the for, with the forces of good and evil mm. so a thief in the night becomes a giant cultural touchstone among the next two generations of evangelical christians until it was largely replaced by the cultural in the cultural consciousness by the next wave of rapture fiction which is called the left behind series now, I've never read this, but I'm pretty sure I've seen it on my mum's mantelpiece, you know? 
And it, there's a whole series of the books. I think there was a an original film. And then in 2014, there was another adaptation of it starring the one, the only, Nicolas Cage. Oh. And I... I sent Nikki you the uh, I sent you the, the the trailer for this as well, yes. didn't I? Yeah. And I don't know. I kind of want to see that. You know. That looks... I do. I mean, I actually, I unironically really like Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Um, I, you know, how can you not like Nicolas Cage? Well, exactly, exactly. Um, the the other thing in it is that it's got Chad Michael Murray in it, and as a as a long time One Tree Hill fan, you know, you, you... yeah, you know. <laughs> Although it's making me think of a of a book series that I or at least a new of. I think I read the first one when I was a kid. Um, it's the Gone series. I can't quite remember who it's by, but the premise was that basically every single adult in the world just disappeared. Yeah. And so the the teenagers and the kids had to kind of rebuild and figure out what they were going to do now that there were no adults in the mm. world to, to sort of, you know, tell them when to go to bed and to go to school and stuff like that. Um surprisingly actually quite quite scary in some ways yeah i can believe that and it's it's really rich for like dystopian fiction do you know what i mean because it's right there right there right at the start there's so much to it and there was also a show called the leftovers uh which took the that initial concept of like half the world seems to disappear and some people think it's a religious event some people think it's aliens and and honestly, I was told how great that show was. So I watched all three series, and I'm never getting that time of my life back now. You know? <laughs> it was just a masterclass in how to squander an absolutely mm. fascinating concept, you know? And, and it's just like, why? I felt a bit like that with Batman versus Superman, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Oof, two hours of my life I'm not going to get back. So what's interesting to look at is who believes these things about the rapture and dispensationalism and what effect might it have on them? So the ideas about the rapture and so on really took off in the in the United States around, again, the 1800s. You know, Darby, who we were talking about, he starts off in Scotland, he ends up going to America and he starts to spread these ideas. And like America at this time is like a super fertile ground for new mm. religious ideas yeah. and this is probably due to a number of things perhaps they had no like statewide church associated with the state like you yeah, do in a lot of you, european you countries you haven't really had a monarch kind of going this is what we're doing now and everyone going okay boss it's a very uh um there's a sort of a vacuum at the top i suppose exactly so there's the there's the big push of like manifest destiny. Everybody is like oh. pushing out west, and they want they want to sort of reclaim. Everybody wants to find their own particular promised land where they can yeah. sort of live by their rules and so on and so forth. Mormonism is uh, is is becoming a oh, big thing. This is this is taking me back to my GCSE years. Yeah, we oh. will we will cover Mormonism <laughs> on a future episode, but Ooh. we will not be doing it right now. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's one particular guy called William Miller who's a Baptist uh, preacher and he has a specific date for the rapture, you know? So people, he, he's like, it's this date, it's going to happen at this particular point. And, and like, we, like, there's a, there's a line somewhere in, in the Bible about no man will know the day or the hour or anything like that. And that doesn't seem to bother him that much because... He says that it's 
So Miller says, My principles, in brief, are that Jesus will come again to this earth, cleanse, purify, and take possession of the same with all the saints sometime between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844, you know? So he's got a very specific mm-hmm. idea what's happening. And, of course, it comes and it goes. People, people are sort of drawn in. They'll sort of sell off their possessions. They sort of get dressed in these kind of white robes, and they sort of wait around and, you know nothing happens that know? must have been a bummer if you know you've sold your house and like the 22nd of march comes around 18 1844 and you're like Ugh. yeah i'm thinking maybe Crap. I'm thinking maybe yeah so here's <laughs> yeah so here's views actually go on to to sort of spawn like the seventh day adventist movement and other adventist movements which i thought was was really interesting to find out where that had come from yeah, it's funny how they sort of branch out and branch out these all these different kind of sects i suppose of christianity it is really interesting yeah absolutely so the fact that belief in the rapture has endured amongst evangelicals is interesting because we can start to see where some problems might arise so if you think that history is going to get worse before it gets better and that that is somehow preordained by god it's possible you might try to see anyone trying to make anything better in society as an affront to the lord Mm -hmm. and this may be part of the reason why Anything with the word socialism attached to it is so unpopular in certain quarters of America, particularly the Bible belts. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. If you think about it also, are you really going to worry about global warming if you think that the Lord is going to snatch you up before anything really bad with global warming actually happens? Yes, I've not actually sort of considered that as a as a, or thought about how the sort of the real world implications of it were. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously there are a plethora of of other reasons which, you know, basically boil down to corporate greed and apathy. So I'm not trying to blame yeah. all of society's ills <laughs> on a belief that some of us are just going to vanish one day, but it would explain why the evangelical church doesn't seem to be as invested in making society better in the way that it. Yeah. would have done in earlier times in history mm. so what do we do with all this information well I, to be honest there are so many different ways of interpreting the end times and to be honest there are so many different ways of interpreting the end times and trying to extrapolate what a person should do to get ready for it but really if you think about it the idea of disappearing at any moment and nobody knowing the day or the hour is basically just the human experience itself you know yeah like none of us know which moment on earth will be our last so put bluntly i'm not going to worry a whole heap about this you know Um, yeah uh, i don't think i'm going to lose any sleep um exactly over whether or not i'm going to get snatched up by jesus yeah Um, i'm just going to (laughs) focus on loving people like jesus told me to and trying my best to be a signpost for him and like so many people believe that we're in the end times, but the earlier Christians believed that as well. And they were, you know, to put it mildly, a bit wrong. So let's yeah. work on the idea that the apocalypse could come round tomorrow, or it could come in 2,000 years from now, or it could come in 200,000 years from now. But in the words of Nick Fury, until such time as the world ends, we will act as though it intends to spin on. Yeah. Wise words to live by, I reckon. Although I am hearing this now, I I am waiting for a blockbuster that is Jesus versus the Antichrist. Oh, like Marvel style. Could you imagine? Dude, like there's 
how incredible that I'm would be. I'm pretty sure there's already enough out there. I think what you were saying... There probably is, yeah. yeah. Now that I think about it's it. It's just you, some, you want you something know. with a decent budget attached to it, don't you? You know? You, yeah. You want something Look, that I, looks, you know, looks I, properly apocalyptic, not like just two dudes having a fight yeah. in a car park. I'm, I'm a simple <laughs> girl, okay, with simple needs. I just need a big budget. <laughs> and, you know, some good special effects. Awesome. Well, listen, that concludes our Finding the Faith in the Film section, and that concludes this episode. Julia, thank you so much for being on board and, and joining me with for this one. Thank you for continuing to listen to me wittering. <laughs> no, thank you. It's always nice to be on, uh, even if, yeah, I do come out with some interesting things sometimes. Yeah, just keep I mean, going, Tess. You said that Martin Luther was your G, and I've never felt more drawn to you. you know? I, did he cause a lot of problems historically? Yeah. Could you technically say that he caused a lot of wars and bloodshed? Also, yes. However, my man's said, this is what I think. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't ashamed to mm-hmm. tell everybody that, you know, what he wanted to tell everyone. And I respect that, you know? 100%. What a G. What a G indeed. <laughs> All right, listeners, thank you for joining us. And we hope to see you next week for our Watchmen episode. In the meantime, Julia, have you had a good time? I've had an excellent time, thank you. Fantastic. All right, listeners, see you soon. Bye. Bye. Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff. That's me. Mixing and editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh. And our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Special contribution by Leia Snellbach. Gordon Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review, unless it's a one star, in which case, track down all the Infinity Stones, set them into the Infinity Gauntlet, and with all that power in the palm of your hand, simply click this episode out of existence.